EMS1.com is the number one online resource for the EMS community and authoritative voice in pre-hospital care. Our members enjoy access to exclusive content from top EMS educators and physicians, award-winning e-newsletters, original video series, member-only product discounts, access to free continuing education courses, and much more. If you're an EMS and not a member of EMS1, join the community for free today. Just go to ems1.com backslash registration. That's ems1.com backslash registration to become a member. New Year, everyone. We want to thank you for getting us through 2018, and, and we've got the new year that's right around the corner, and in 2019, we've got a lot of great things happening, and as a matter of fact, me and this guy will be coming up on 250 episodes in the beginning of April, five years as partners, my good friend Kelly Grayson. KG, how was your Christmas? My Christmas was was excellent, man. I got a um, after our show last week. Um, Nancy went out and bought me a skateboard and a hacky sack, and oh, uh, and now I've, I've I've got a reason reason to eat Cheetos in my beanbag chair. So so I'm good, man. Santa was very good to me this year. Did you get your reindeer? I mean, how did that work out? Uh, yeah, yeah. I uh, I cut I cut Donner down, you know, and um, I'm. I'm I sent him off to the taxidermist. We should have that mount back over my fireplace in in, uh, in a few months. And Miss um, Rudolph, but but hey, you know, got to got to let him walk. He's still a young guy. Let him get some size on it before we harvest him for that rack. Yeah, I got to tell you, man, you're just crazy down there. So you know, we had a, a good show, I think, last week, and uh, certainly there were a lot of comments on Facebook about it. And uh, we wanted to have David back or discuss some of the legalities that work the workplace could be uh, having to deal with when it comes to maybe termination of an employee who has a positive urinalysis with a medical card. And But before we go any further, David, I want to thank you for coming back to uh, Inside EMS, and uh, we appreciate you doing the back-to-backer. Uh, it's my pleasure. Listen, first of all, it's good to be back, but second of all, thanks for getting me a way of uh, away from nonstop Red Dead Redemption since Christmas Day, so okay. I, my brain needed the break. Awesome. Well, we're we're happy that you know we try to be entertaining to the masses, so we're uh, we're excited for that. But you know, from your standpoint, we'll just remind folks: you're an EMS defense attorney, and so you may be seeing some of these people that may have a sure. case of wrongful termination. But you were also a first responder for many years, a paramedic, and I think now when we start to kind of wrap our head around the states with medical marijuana and from an organizational standpoint, how do we really accept this as part of our organizational culture? Because one of the things that I think comes to mind now is we have an employee who is has a medical marijuana card. They now show up positive on a year analysis. I'm going to think that somewhere along the line, one of these employees are going to get terminated. And what does that mean for our organization? I, I think that means the organization is headed for a lawsuit. I think that if they are a genuine patient with a genuine problem, treating or with a genuine uh, treatment option, and they are terminated for it with no evidence that they are uh, ha- having any adverse effect on their performance, 
I think this is going to end up in court. And I think it, it, it's inevitable that this issue is going to end up in front of the Supreme Court. And uh, so whoever that first test case is, they're going to be in for quite a ride. David, let's take a hypothetical scenario. Uh, EMT EMT at at an agency has a medical marijuana card treating for uh, prescribed to him for PTSD, and he's involved in an accident. The accident doesn't even have to be his fault, Uh, but he is uh, found to have THC in his system and a post-accident drug screen and his employer wants to punish him for this sort of thing. What, what would be your strategy first and foremost and, and how to defend the, this guy and, and how would you start to attack the, uh, the employer, uh, their case in, in terminating this guy? I think the first question for me as his attorney, if I was his attorney, would be what kind of THC did you find? It's not enough that there's the presence of THC. Is it Delta, uh, is it Delta 9? Is it hydroxy or is it carboxy? Uh, if, it's, if it's delta-9 or hydroxy, then we've got a problem because those are the, the, the kinds of THC that are psychoactive, psychotropic. If it's just simply uh, carboxy THC, then they would have to, for, for me, they would have to prove to me that he was somehow or she was somehow impaired. And that's going to be a kind of a tough row for them to hoe now. What caused the accident? What's, you know, what were the other factors? Uh, even still, how, how long after the accident was the test taken? Uh, what is the, the, the ingestion pattern? How was it ingested? I mean, there's, there's so many variables and so many questions to ask that there's no way that the simple presence of THC is a cut and dried uh, grounds for any kind of discipline, much less termination. Yeah. Are, are there currently tests uh, or not test, are, are there currently standards uh, and, and hard, reliable data out there for how much uh, THC or any of the psychoactive substances in, in marijuana, how much they affect uh, motor coordination and reaction time? It, it, th- there's no set standard. Um, there are different theories, different levels that you know, different groups have assigned to uh, different levels of impairment, but there's no one singular standard like 0.08% yeah. blood alcohol content, for example, that there's no such number that exists. Uh, they still have to rely heavily on objective signs and symptoms. They have to uh, rely heavily on uh, what they found and in what levels and, and when it was tested, but also they're going to have to rely on, on the person's own statements regarding when they ingested, how they ingested, what they ingested. So no, there's, there's no set number. There's no set standard. It's all very squishy right now. So David, what about pre-screening? So now we have an employee who comes to us that wants a job and they use medical marijuana and they come up positive on that pre-screen urinalysis and we decide not to hire them because of that positive screen. Is there any legality that comes back to the organization that says, you know, we have it in our policy that you can't be on medical marijuana, we're not hiring you. I mean, where's the liability for the organization? It depends on where you are. In California, for example, they don't, they don't have to hire anybody. They can, they can refuse anybody they want, provided they're not in a protected class. And currently, uh, medical marijuana users are not designated as protected. Now, if I was, if I was representing that person, my question would be, okay, let's take a look at those policies. 
do you have a policy against Adderall? Do you have a policy against um, hydrocodone? Do you have a policy against any other legal medication? And if you don't, then I would argue that the policy against medical marijuana is discriminatory. That's the kind of issue that I'm talking about ending up in the Supreme Court. So let's let's take it from this standpoint, though. How how do we defend this, David? So we have some tolerance in our uh, organization. We have policies that say you can't consume marijuana six or ten hours, whatever it is, before a shift. Because I think we need to be able to have some type of caveat that says you know you can't hit it before you come to work on the ride in regardless if you have it. So we we need to be able to say in place, you know, 12 hours, 10 hours, 8 hours, whatever it is, just like we have, uh, you know, for alcohol. Um, But then there's an accident. And there's a fatality at the cause of, you know, we'll say that it's the ambulance's fault. Is the organization more liable now that we have an employee and we're allowing that employee to be behind the wheel of an ambulance that just caused a fatality. And again, we don't know how long it's been since they, you know, smoked. It could be a 10-day thing, and they're coming up positive in their urinalysis. How, how are we combating that? Uh, using, using just the rules of pure negligence, the presence of THC at, at any level is not by itself assuming it was assuming it was acquired and used legally is not it is not itse- itself enough of a breach to result in a in a in an adequate negligence claim they would have to show that the use of marijuana being a breach was both the actual and proximate cause of some damage and that's really really hard to do especially if there's no psychotropic elements to the THC they found now if there were then it's it's game over, that they're done. So I suppose that any agency ex- assumes some sort of, well, you know, they don't have to. I was, was going to say that they might assume some sort of risk if they allow the policy, but they don't because people can drink, people can take prescription drugs, people can take Ambien, and as long as, there's, as, long as they don't, they're not impaired by it when they arrive at work, then that is no more a cause for liability than, than marijuana would be, assuming that it was not active at the time. Now, let's uh, let's take another hypothetical scenario. Let's say uh, an agency uh, is known to uh, to have an open policy for employees with medical marijuana prescriptions. Uh, they they allow uh, them to work there, and one of those employees is on the job, gets involved in an accident, and. You know how we, uh, the star of life on our ambulances might as well be a target on the side for some uh, sure. uh, litigious people. Um, how do you go about, how would the agency go about defending themselves uh, in a lawsuit from, say, an at-fault accident when the driver uh, is, uh, when the, the driver of the vehicle is uh, is smoking marijuana? Not on the right, so job, of course, but has it in his system. Sure. So, again, it, it, but it goes back to the, the what there may be marijuana, but what there may be THC in the system, but what specifically is it? It's not enough for it just to be THC. If it's psychoactive, if it, if it is um, hydroxy or Delta nine, then the agency has got a huge problem, but they would have that problem anyway. Right. Um, if it is just trace amounts of, of carboxy leftover from another, it, it'd be no different than if there were trace amounts of, 
you know, I don't, I don't know how long benzos necessarily stay in the system, but it would be the same. Let's say you took an Ambien at seven o'clock the night before and had a good full night's sleep and went to work the next day and had an accident. And, you know, you, your test comes back positive for trace amounts of, of, of benzos or whatever's in there. I think it would be no different. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I see, I think that is, is a, something that we have all over the years been taught to be afraid of. I don't yeah. think it's, it's the monster that people think it is. I think our, our attitudes, you know, nationwide have started to shift a lot. Uh, uh, um, and, and we take less of a dim view of, of marijuana use than we once did, but how much uh, of, of the success of defending that case you think is going to rely, is going to hinge on the uh, local attitudes and the jury pool you're picking from? You know, uh, Gene Gandy used to tell me, he said that, that liability cases hinge on whoever's expert is uh, not necessarily the facts. Whoever's expert is most believable and, and 12 people who are too ignorant to know how to get out of jury duty. Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, that's, uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. The jury pools are made up of people not smart enough to get out of jury duty and they're very easy to convince. My, my criminal law professor, you know, years and years ago on, the, on our very first day, the first thing he said was, that the facts of any given case are the facts. They don't change, they don't bend, they don't alter, they're always the facts. But it's the lawyer, and in this case, the lawyer and the witnesses, uh, who spin them better, they're the ones who win. So Gene was absolutely right. Uh, I think that a, a jury in downtown Los Angeles is gonna have a different view um, you know, than a jury somewhere in, in the central part of Kentucky, or maybe even in Louisiana. Yeah, I would, I would think so as well. You know, so let's go ahead and think about disclosing. So there are states right now that have put policy in place, Connecticut, Illinois, Maine, Rhode Island, uh, and this is according to the uh, National, uh, National Safety Council's website, but they have law that they put in place that says it protects the employees' rights and safeguard against disciplinary action for medical marijuana use. So, with that said, if I go to a pre-screening, do I have to disclose? Or even if I'm an employee, do I need to disclose that I'm on medical marijuana? Uh, that, that could, there's too many variables to be able to answer that question. Every state is different, and even some areas within states have different different rules. I would, I, my assumption would be, and this is just, and we know what, we, we know what assumptions are, uh, but my assumption would be that if the jurisdiction allows the use, then a pre-screening would be a waste of time. What are they pre-screening for? Now, they could be pre-screening for other drugs and uses. That's fine. But if they're, if they're pre-screening for the purpose of excluding on that alone, on marijuana alone, that's going to be problematic for the employer. I ran into an interesting uh, case uh, a few years back where uh, a Native American woman claimed uh, her marijuana use um, uh, justified it on religious grounds. Um, she uh, she had been passed out in the break room at work and uh, they they called the police on her and, and the police called an ambulance uh, and I was uh, uh, had to give this woman her discharge instructions which included the phrase uh, stop abusing drugs and she said uh, you know I, I don't abuse drugs I only smoke weed and it's part of my culture but she was adamant about that that it was her right um, uh, as as part of her her religious beliefs uh, is that a defendable issue as well 
Well, the constitutionality of, of the First Amendment is a very tricky, very tricky area. We are under the First Amendment to the Constitution entitled, we, we have the absolute right to express our religious beliefs, to exercise our religion in a way that we see fit, but it's not uncommon for that to conflict with other laws. And I think what the Supreme, there's been a long time since I've had constitutional law, but I think what the, what the Supreme Court would, would look at, or any court for that matter, would look at to determine you know, which way to go on it would be the, the benefits uh, to the society, benefits to society or the danger to society and for example, some religions practice dancing with rattlesnakes. Yeah, well, and rattlesnakes are illegal everywhere. Yeah, and, um, and the, the Mayans practice human sacrifice. So, right, the, the, and the law frowns on that. Well, in most states. So I, I think I think I think what it boils down to is um, it's, it's going to be tested on reasonableness. And and years ago, when that kind of issue was was at issue. The view of marijuana use, for example, was much was much different. But if if someone said their their practice of religion involved the use of cocaine, that's not going to fly. That's never going to fly. So, Dave, I mean, you're out there in California, and we certainly know that California is very liberal when it comes to recreational and medical marijuana. Have you seen this already uh, coming across your desk as something that you're having to defend for your clients? I, I, I am. I, in fact, I'm seeing it more and more at both EMS and non-EMS, um, you know, people. The, 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 the phone calls I get now for marijuana-related DUIs have more than quadrupled in the last six months because police departments all across the state are arresting people more for marijuana just because they smell it, just because they, you know, really, it's, it's the number one thing is they smell it in the car. Um, I just had a, just finished a trial where my client happened to also be an EMS provider, but he was stopped for driving under the influence of, of marijuana. And it was on the smell that they, that they presumed it. They had the DRE come out and check them out. They did the blood test. They did everything. And we won that jury trial quite, I don't want to say quite easily. I'm trying to be humble, but quite easily because number one, the objective signs of impairment simply weren't there. And number two, there was no psychoactive THC in the system. So law enforcement is, is really pushing hard up against it. EMS agencies, LEMSAs and you know, EMS authorities statewide and local county, local EMS authorities are, are cracking down on the use, but they're, they're, they're getting a lot of pushback, certainly from me. David, what does this really mean? I mean, for an organization, I mean, we're, we're, we're in a place now where this is going to become more commonplace. And we have to start to think about it from the standpoints of protecting our organization, protecting our patients, certainly protecting our workforce. But now that we're in this quagmire of medical marijuana, how does an organization handle this successfully, whether it's allowing, whether it's zero tolerance? I mean, how do we go forward with this? I, I think first and foremost, organizations need to recognize that like, like anything else, EMS is made up of people and how people treat and manage issues has changed greatly over, certainly over my lifetime. And I think that organizations need to take first and foremost, the human look at the efficacy. Um, I think the second thing they need to do is um, recognize that this issue is not going away 
and establish policies that make sense, that aren't just rooted in, in old-timey thought processes where drugs are bad, okay? They just can't do that anymore. I think it's time for us not to look at marijuana use specifically as the, as the monster that it once was. I think that, um, I think it's time for us to, to grow, really. You took the words out of my mouth. Uh, I think that, you know, navigating the rocks and shoals of, of marijuana use, uh, medical marijuana use among your employees is, you know, I don't know that it's that going to be that big of an issue for the agencies that really do well, no matter what, uh, the, the agencies, EMS agencies that view their, their employees as assets rather than commodities are going to figure out a way. They're going to figure out a way how to do this, uh, from, from, uh, a, 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 um, humanistic standpoint, uh, and come up with policies and procedures that are both fair and, and, and flexible. Um, but Hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Email us at the show at ems1.com. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes and for myself and co-host Chris Ciballero and our special guest for a second week in a row, David Gibbett. Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.